Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Gianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Welcome back, Renaissance people, to our second episode that's taking a precise look at the art, history, and culture of Venice in the Renaissance. Our previous episode covered the basic principles of Renaissance society in Venice as it pertains to the geography of the city, the political situation, and how it interacts in other Italian city-states, as well as the Eastern Mediterranean. We were able to position it as a place that combines multiple influences, perspectives, and as one that benefits greatly from a mercantile society that does not operate under a monarch, but a doge who has limited power. We now turn to a topic that's critical in our understanding of Venetian culture and society in the Renaissance, and that is San Marco. We're going to cover this in multiple ways. So first, we're talking about the saint, Mark the Evangelist, and the history and mythology built around Venice as it pertains to his relics and the importance of his presence in the city. Second, the Basilica of San Marco, named after St. Mark, which takes a particularly important position in a number of major works by the Renaissance painters of Venice. It's important to understand how cities sought to establish an origin and a mythology which they could use as a means of building a sense of identity. Okay, so origin produces identity in a certain sort of way, right? This often relates both to antiquity and their contemporary practices of Christianity. What is a city's origin and how do they establish themselves within a Christian context in light of that origin? And sometimes that origin is both antique and Christian, as we will see, right? But like I always say, oftentimes understanding Renaissance societies is in part formulating how antiquity is being reconciled with Christian practice and culture. In the case of Venice, the consensus came to be that the city was founded on the same day as the Feast of the Annunciation, March the 25th in the year 421. This both places the founding of the city at the end of late antiquity, okay, and on one of the feast days to the Virgin Mary, whose importance cannot be understated. For those of you who do not know, the Annunciation is the moment when the Archangel Gabriel came down from heaven to announce to Mary that she was pregnant with the Son of God. Okay, very, very important day for Christian societies. Yet, the religious culture of the 15th and 16th centuries is born out of a medieval tradition of myth right? Namely, in the story of how the supposed body of St. Mark came to be in Venice at all. If you want to know more about the practices of the cult and worship of saints, please reference my previous issue, um, issue, like this is a magazine, my previous episode on it, which covers the role of relics in pilgrimage. The episode is titled The Cult of the Saints. In the case of Venice, this mythology, this story, is the case of the theft of the body of St. Mark. And this is a, quite a remarkable tale. 
Keep in mind that there are several different versions of this story, but I'll give the most concise version that I can and try to align all the similarities. In essence, Mark the Evangelist, the credited writer of one of the four Gospels of the New Testament, if you guys are familiar with that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're talking Mark here, he was said to have preached on the very shores of the Venetian Lagoon. Um, a very important text to anyone looking to learn about the history of saints or to reference in order to sort out stories and issues like this is called The Golden Legend by Jacobus de Voragine. It's your go-to guide to source that was used in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. Right, They used this, they were familiar with this, and often informed these popular legends around the saints. In this case, the Golden Legend confirms that Mark preached his gospel in a place called Aquileia, near the modern uh, city of Venice on the Adriatic Sea. The legend maintains that while in the lagoon, an angel said to Mark, in Latin, Pax tibi marche evangelista meus, which has been translated roughly to rest here, Mark, my evangelist, or be at peace here, Mark, my evangelist, which was interpreted that Venice was destined to be his final resting place. The golden legend tells us that St. Mark's preaching then took him to the Egyptian coast in Alexandria where he founded a church, but he was ultimately martyred and laid to rest there. Martyring, of course, refers to the untimely execution of Christians for um, trying to spread their faith. It is told that in the year 828, Two Venetian merchants, Bono da Malamocco and Rustico da Torcello, that's a mouthful, were in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, either trading or sheltering from a storm. Most accounts agree that word reached them, that the Muslims who occupied the city were looting and destroying churches, and thus they decided they needed to rescue the body of the saint from the church from which he was entombed, the church or the catacombs, what have you. They managed to acquire the body from its tomb, sneak it out of Alexandria to their ship, and sail back to Venice. The body was presented to the doge, who had a church built as the new home for the saintly relics, what stands today as the Basilica of San Marco. So, we can consider the Venetians as having thought about the theft of the body as a fulfillment of divine destiny for St. Mark. Remember, he was told by an angel, Venice will be your final resting place, according to their legends. In the essence of the story, they had predetermined that his remains would be there. And this is not a biblical source, mind you, but just local legend. Do you see how these lines form? How legend is being used to link Venice to a larger divine concept? increasing their importance in the Christian world, all while establishing an identity, one that links and maintains their mercantile tradition in the Mediterranean, right? Venetian traders in Alexandria. Are we seeing this? St. Mark the Evangelist, one of the most uh, among the important saints, right? Because there is a hierarchy of saints. Those who are closer to Christ typically are, are more important. And all of this culminates in the very symbol of the city, 
the winged lion of St. Mark, his gospel book beneath his mighty paw, reading those very same words, Pax tibi marce evangelista meus. And this thing is everywhere in Venice, this lion of St. Mark, right? And even later, it's Renaissance territories along the coast. To this day, it is still the symbol of the city. And um, I've already posted examples of the Lion of St. Mark to the Instagram, so be sure to go follow to get to get your eyes on those. The effect of this rich tradition built around the saint results in his widespread importance in Venetian art. One example of the very subject of this legend is painted by the artist Jacopo Robusti, or we call him Tintoretto which was between 1562 and 1566, for the Scuola Grande di San Marco. So Scuola refers to, in essence, a confraternity, and the Scuola Grande of San Marco was one of six of the Scuole Grandi, right, or the large confraternities, although there were hundreds of smaller ones. So we're dealing with like an important and large cultural entity here commissioning these works. It's very important to note that these scuole were heavily supported by the Venetian state. Should we consider that the legends of St. Mark are essential in how we understand even secular Venetian identity? The interest of the state and the Scuole Grande di San Marco shared an ideological alignment, particularly in the art that the Scuola commissioned in the Renaissance. Are we, are we following me here? So Tintoretto painted for the Scuola starting in about 1548. His primary patron was a man named Tommaso Rangone, a seemingly polarizing figure in the Venetian political sphere. He is noted as having dedicated a particular amount of energy in publicizing his own image in public arts, which was not aligning with the Venetian tendency towards a unity through individual equality. That is not to say that he was unsuccessful in publicizing his image. His inclinations towards his individual self mixed with a shared aesthetic taste with Tintoretto for ancient Roman design and sharp, dramatic, architectural perspectives, as we're about to see. Tommaso Rangone earned the title of Guardian Grande for the Scuola of San Marco in the year 1562. Recall that is when these paintings were started. I'm going to read a brief excerpt from the book Tintoretto by Tom Nichols, the same author I quoted from the last episode who wrote that excellent but concise history of Venice. Referring to Tommaso after taking his new position as Guardian Grande in 1562, Nichols says, quote, In June of that year, Tommaso single-handedly refloated the commission for a cycle of large narrative paintings to hang in the main room of the Scuola's meeting house, the Sala Capitolare. In a typical flamboyant gesture which flouted orthodox corporate practice in the Scuola, Tommaso made himself wholly responsible for the financing of the project and probably also for the subject program and choice of artists, end quote. You guys seeing what's happening here? 
Tommaso is trying to position himself to have a certain amount of control over the decoration of the Sala Capitulare. And we will see why as it pertains to the importance of our St. Mark. I want us to look at two works from this cycle that treat the story so that we can better understand how it manifested in the Renaissance and mingled with individual interest and style. We'll start by looking at a painting called The Removal of the Body of St. Mark, again by Tintoretto. So get this image in front of you if you can while we go over some details. Removal of the Body of St. Mark by Tintoretto. 1562-ish. So this painting shows the moment after St. Mark has been martyred in Alexandria in the first century ACE, and his followers have recovered his body to give it a proper burial. As they do this, a divine storm rips through a reddened sky. Reddened red sky, with dark storm clouds giving cover to the Christian devotees, yet the pagan population of Alexandria, they're scattering in terror, they're running around, right, they're fleeing into this sort of uh, classical looking portico or loggia to take cover from the storm. Look closely, because we have seen some of these design elements before. Albertian perspective is rendered precisely in this architecture, in the pavement, which is both classicized and pagan, mind you. The temple in the back, it might resemble a Renaissance church facade. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. But something is not right. It has this strange central tower. There are these sculptures on either side of it that might reference pagan idols. So the architecture is both recognizable and unreal. It's removed, confirming and subverting a classical visual vocabulary. Alexandria here is an imagined space. Although the entirety of the architecture distinctly recalls both Tommaso and Tintoretto's inclination to classical form, the surface seems unfinished, along with all those nasty pagan idolaters fleeing in terror, right? They're not really rendered in precise detail. It seems like they're, they're missing something. It's only our holy Christian folk who dominate the foreground 
right, who are rendered in complete color, in modeling, in shadow, chiaroscuro, right, forcing the eye to perceive them as different from their surroundings. St. Mark's unblemished body, even though he's just been martyred, is slightly and expertly foreshortened, right, the practice of making a depth to a figure or a character or a limb or something that's kind of coming out at you for shortening. The lightest glimmer, the smudge of a halo, reminds us of his divine status. I want to look at a second painting in the cycle now, then we will tie some of these themes together, so bear with me. Tintoretto also paints the finding of the body of St. Mark for the Sala Capitolare, the same cycle by Tommaso Rangone, right? A scene we should be familiar with because we just went over the legends as it pertains to St. Mark. It shows the very moment in the year 828 when the two Venetian merchants, Buono da Malamocco and Rustico da Torcello, remember, supposedly removed St. Mark's body from the sepulchre in Alexandria before bringing it to Venice, one of those essential foundation stories that is so importantly influential for the early construction of Venetian identity. We've seen what's happening here. This is being pulled into the painting. It's a major part of this cycle. Just like the removal, okay, we're talking the removal and we're talking the finding. So just like the removal painting we just discussed, the figures are placed against an expanse of classicized architecture. This time, an interior space that imprecisely suggests an early Christian basilica which is a whole nother architecture history that we don't need to get into. I'm just going to tell you that, okay? What we see is a Roman barrel vault recessing in the space. Look at the painting, Roman barrel vault. Again, magnificent architectural perspective, the preferences of Tintoretto and Tommaso, okay? Bodies are being removed from tombs as they search to find the relics of St. Mark, the relic meaning his corpse. Okay, let's be clear here. Surely the bodies they are removing are not showing the 800 years of decomposition they would have endured. A mark of the divinity of the early Christians buried in this space, perhaps. Yet, it is still a jarring image. It feels hasty and dramatic, capturing this very moment that St. Mark manifests to the far left of the composition, telling the group that they have his body, even as gravity is about to exert itself on a corpse that they are pulling down from above. It's quite alarming. So in both the removal and the finding, if you look closely, and not even too closely, you might see a familiar face. A slightly older man with a beard is in the center position of both paintings. It's kind of strange, right, given these are about St. Mark. Remember when I told you that the patron Tommaso Rangone liked to have his image displayed in these public spheres? Well, now he has used his prominent position of financing these artworks, which he surely did intentionally, in order to position himself as a central figure in the story of St. Mark. In the removal, He's actually the guy holding 
Mark's head up, right? A gesture of closeness and intimacy, but also a means of placing focus on his own image, which they surely would have recognized in the period. But in the finding, he takes a near center of the composition. He's slightly off, slightly off center, looking directly at St. Mark, one of the only figures. There's another figure that might I can't tell if they're looking at St. Mark or if their head is kind of throwing back in despair. I can't tell. But he might be the only figure in the whole painting looking at the saint. And when the viewer's eyes follow the patrons, right, Tommaso on his knees with his hands spread, his gaze on St. Mark, when our eyes follow his, then are they implored to look at the saint. He is the one directing you to the saint, his patronage of art, his status, his position in Venetian society as the guardian grande of the Scuola di San Marco. See how the conceptualization of origin is manifesting in the Renaissance as an interaction between the social institutions, the state, the patron, the artist, and the public? Not to mention The rise of Renaissance humanism is in full force at this point, where ideas of individual achievement and importance are taking center stage throughout Europe. We talked about this at length with Florence. Here, though not uniquely, it has to reconcile with the Venetian notion of resisting individual superiority. So let's change gears now, and let's look at the actual basilica itself, the Basilica of San Marco in Venice, which was built for the recovered body of the saint from Alexandria. The primary construction of the basilica took place in the Middle Ages, roughly from 1063 to 1094. We know that the design was based on the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople, the Byzantine capital, that is, uh, Byzantium, right? It is in the shape of a Greek cross, as opposed to the Italian peninsula's tendency towards the Latin cross shape, which has the longer nave, right? The Greek cross has even, uh, you know, it's even on all sides. Does that make sense? The, the structure of San Marco has five domes, now they're called to Byzantium, and the interior is decorated in the most magnificent mosaics that you have ever seen, to put it lightly. These mosaic designs span from earlier Byzantine craftsmen working in Venice to even Renaissance mosaicists who are going to add, restore, improve upon, replace other mosaic sets, and there are even further restorations in subsequent centuries. The mosaics span a large span of history. The most dazzling feature of these mosaics is that they are made of an excessive amount of gold, a testament to the history of Venetian wealth. Just an aside, those are made by putting gold leaf in between two pieces of glass. It's called a tessera, and those get put into the design. So it's not solid pieces of gold, but it's still a lot of gold. Okay. Um, just a marvelous experience I was lucky to have at my time with Florida State University in Italy um, was that they booked a, an evening sunrise show inside of San Marco, which if you go during the regular tourist hours, you're neck to neck with people, you know, the floor, the pavement, which is also highly 
decorated is uneven and it's hard to really appreciate the the space with a thousand people in there but we went in in the pitch dark and one by one they illuminated each of the gold domes um, and it was really a, a fantastic experience so if you can get in there and try to get one of these evening tours I, I highly recommend it while I do not want to promote that Venetian Renaissance art relies on mosaic design as a defining aspect of it it certainly is a feature in some works, like paintings, which intentionally recall and reference those fabulous works in St. Mark's Basilica. However, it is the exterior that I would like to look at. There is an entire history of the exterior decoration of the basilica, all the way from the sacking and looting of Constantinople during the Crusades in the 1200s to the Renaissance additions to the facade and beyond. But I want to focus on an interesting example of how the structure is used in Renaissance painting. Gentile and Giovanni Bellini are artists who we will come back to with some frequency. If you remember, we talked briefly about their father Jacopo and his drawing of the flagellation of Christ. St. Mark preaching in Alexandria was a painting started by Gentile. Okay, St. Mark preaching in Alexandria is um, what the painting is titled today. But it's finished by his brother Giovanni when Gentile dies. Okay, so now we're looking earlier than Tintoretto between... 1504 and 1507. So we're, you know, 50-something years before Tintoretto's work for the Sala Capitolare, but we are seeing some of the very same concepts that draw on the aspect of Venetian cultural identity that we're talking about, their relationship to the relics and body and basilica of St. Mark. It is no surprise that this work was also commissioned by the Scuola Grande di San Marco. So what are we looking at here? Again, get this in front of you. It's Giovanni and Gentile Bellini's St. Mark preaching in Alexandria. And what a weird painting it is. We know that Gentile Bellini spent time in the Ottoman courts in Constantinople at the end of the 1400s and probably went beyond Constantinople. But what we have here is an inaccurate architecture that resembles what is known as Mamluk style, or the Islamic dynasty that ruled over Egypt adequately for Alexandria. But Mamluk style is very different from Ottoman style. And at the same time, the Venetians had been trading in Egypt for centuries. So approximation of a Mamluk style based on any number of sources is possible. These references to Egyptian architecture, along with the narrative being told, clearly place the scene in Alexandria, right? Egyptian architecture, kind of, right? St. Mark, he's preaching, right? And especially that if we consider Alexandria's link to Venice. But this painting is accompanied by some absurd exoticisms. You see the giraffe strolling along in the back? What's he doing there? We have these camels. We have turbaned men. We have an ancient Egyptian obelisk next to Islamic minarets. Now, the minaret is the tower that attaches to a mosque for the call to prayer. So it's this strange link. And it's quite a fictional setting that still 
hangs on to nearly recognizable conventions. All this is happening alongside people in contemporary Venetian dress, a grand mixture of individuals across the entire painting. The most remarkable feature for our topic today is that strange building that takes up the majority of the architectural space. It certainly is not an image of St. Mark's Basilica with these strange quarter circles springing from it with these inlaid arches, yet it is simultaneously immediately recognized as St. Mark's. What is going on here? The Bellini are drawing upon the Venetian imagination to invent an ancient Alexandria, but one that visually links those events to the mythology that we have been talking about all this time. Before St. Mark is martyred, before his body is interred by his followers, before he is exhumed and dragged across the Mediterranean to Venice, here, St. Mark preaches, alive, his destiny, his final resting place, the glory of Venetian religious life stands tall behind him before he's even dead, before it's even built. I wonder if this painting also offers the potential Christianization of the Mamluk lands in which the Venetians traded with. Just a question, I'm, like a means to express a justification. Just as the painting is a prophecy in which St. Mark will eventually arrive in Venice, does it project the conversion of the Mamluks who are listening to his certain sermon? His sermon? Excuse me. I don't actually know the answer to this question, but I'm wondering, because Venetians are trading with Islamic lands, Islamic lands are trading with Venice. We've talked about the power of the Venetian state, ways that they are navigating around their, frankly, violent religious differences. So perhaps, like I'm saying, this is some kind of cultural justification um, that St. Mark's work in Egypt is not done, so to speak. I think I have adequately stressed the role of St. Mark in Venice during the Renaissance. By no means is this the central subject of the entire scope of Venetian Renaissance painting, but it is an essential topic in understanding major aspects of the visual culture of the city, be it the myth, the legend around the saint, the folklore that connects him to Venice, or how Venetian culture reacts to it. It is also important to conceptualize this within the cultural changes happening in the Renaissance. We saw Tommaso Rangone, his intense focus on his own individual self, and how he connects his patronage with something holy. Humanism and Christianity are seemingly unified under the works that he, oh, so generously financed. Likewise with the Bellini, we understand the importance of the basilica structure in painting, and it will appear again, but as a mark of Venetianness, even in fictional versions of real distant places. Alexandria. Fake Alexandria. Fake antique Alexandria. 
To be absolutely clear, St. Mark and the visual culture that surround him are essential items in how we understand several aspects of Renaissance Venice. It does not define it in its entirely, though. Yet, as we move forward, it will come up again. I want to thank you all for joining me in this discussion. All of the paintings mentioned, as well as other supplementary materials, will be posted on the Facebook and the Instagram. Go like, go follow, and do all that fun stuff, and share, and tell your friends. Please leave the show a review and help get the word out. We are growing at a very steady pace, and I find that very exciting and gratifying. Thank you all. Until next time, arrivederci.